Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant. With me, as always, is Eric Whitehead. To my left, Eric is the uh, engineer. That is to say, he's the guy with his hands on the keyboard and the dials. Hey, Eric. Yeah, Eric generally doesn't say much. And Phil Grant sitting across from Eric. Phil runs our Almost Daily Grants. And then there is the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grants, directly across from me. That makes, what, four of us, right? Right. But it's not just four of us today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we have two authorities on the Canadian real estate market on this very telephone. And I would like to introduce him to you. Uh, first, uh, we have Ben Rabideau, who is not only the proprietor of the research firm North Cove Advisors, but also was uh, featured in a grant story on, uh, on the Canadian real estate market back in February. So, Ben, welcome to you. And Seth Daniels, who is the founding partner of JKD Capital, and he too is an authority on... Uh, I don't know what's not going entirely according to plan in Canada. So, gentlemen, thank you, for, thank you for being here. You know, I, I uh, before we sat down, Evan Lorenz handed me a piece of paper, and this is a Bloomberg story, and the headline says, "Quote: Canada's household debt to income ratio falls post uh, ratio posts record decline." So there was a, um, a, a at least uh, the perturbation of a deleveraging underway in Canada. But, but before we get into that uh, kind of arcana, Ben, would you tell us in a few well-chosen words why the Canadian housing situation ought to be of interest to everybody in North America and not just to the residents of Vancouver or Toronto? Sure. So I would say that when you start to parse the source of economic growth in Canada and you start to look for exactly where the growth has come from in recent years, we find that overwhelmingly, particularly in the last three years, we see roughly 85% of real GDP growth has been uh, household consumption and residential investment. And so it's been a major driver of growth. I think the household leverage story is well understood internationally in Canada. And I would say that as it relates to Toronto and Vancouver, you're looking at almost 50% of resale transactions in recent years and about that equivalent in new household credit growth between those two cities. And so if you have a hard landing in those two metros, it becomes kind of a national story and with, with all sorts of repercussions beyond that. Seth, what to you is the characteristic excess, if I am assuming the right assumption, what is the characteristic excess of the Canadian residential real estate market? Is it price? Is it uh, business practice? Is it... Uh, uh, the uh, long, dark shadow of the suppression of free commercial speech. What, what to you is the characteristic flaw in what you see before you? Uh, it's a great question. So like you, I, I generally approach bubbles like this from an Austrian perspective. And so credit... That, that, that means the, the, the guy holding the pin, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so for me, credit excess is, is what drives these bubbles and, and price is the natural outgrowth of the credit, the credit expansion. And so if you look in Canada at their credit expansion versus savings or GDP growth or any of the other metrics you want to look at, it, it looks a lot like what we had in the U.S. going into the crisis. Um, you know, if anything, the, the numbers are, are probably worse. And as usual, accompanying that, when credit growth goes on unchecked for many, many years and you're in a housing mania, lending practices themselves become more and more lax. And we have seen that in Canada as well. And, and you know, I think many of the lending practices in Canada are you know, at least as bad as anything we saw in the States. And, and some of them are significantly scarier than, than what we had in the subprime market here. Could you name one scarier example? Yeah, I, you know, and Ben can probably talk a little bit about this as well. But in the U.S. at the peak, home equity lines of credit were under 3% of GDP. And it's, it's probably four times that size in Canada. And 
the statistics for how they're being used are um, a little spotty, but anecdotally, a huge percentage of those home equity lines of credit have been plowed back into the housing market, either as a down payment to buy another house to speculate on or to loan directly to subprime borrowers. And there are a couple ways that Canadians do that. One way is that you can lend directly where someone borrows on their, their HELOC and then loans to just a, a subprime borrower one-year interest only, or, or there are companies set up that can pool capital to loan to subprime borrowers, and they frequently are also funded by HELOCs. And so you're essentially taking this sliver of equity and rehypothecating it over or re recycling it over and over throughout the economy, sort of the way we, we did with securitizations and CDOs in, in the States. You know, um, way back when, this is about 100 years ago in, this, in America, there was uh, something called the, uh, the Strauss bond, which was a real estate obligation issued and packaged by S.W. Strauss and Company. Very, very popular security. They uh, yielded 6% at a time when government securities were paying 4% or so. At first, there were only first mortgages were these Strauss bonds. Later, as lending conditions, as credit conditions became uh, easier and underwriting practices slacker, they began to issue second and third mortgages, not necessarily telling the clientele what uh, security they were holding. And uh, so Strauss had advertised correctly. There had been no losses since, I think, 1885. Comes the depression, comes the aftermath, and comes the magnificent downfall of this great organization and, um, and the very sad outcome for its investors. So tell us, if you would please, uh, Ben or Seth or both, about the prevalence of mortgage bonds in Canada. Sure, this is Ben here. I'll, I'll take this one perhaps. So there, there's certainly some parallels there in the sense that what we see in Canada has been in recent years a proliferation of some of these non-prime sort of shadow lending institutions whereby, as Seth alluded to, you, you see a lot of people borrowing off of housing equity, investing in these with sort of this understanding that uh, there's never been losses. These are generally high yielding instruments. And so you're looking at on, on first mortgages right now in Canada, 8% interest only one year terms in the private mortgage space. And when you get into the second mortgage space, you're looking at you know, 12 to 15%. So for an investment that hasn't seen losses in really in decades, uh, you can understand the appeal. And really what it speaks to in Canada is that there's been sort of this speculative mindset meets this reach for yield, meet real estate kind of never goes down, kind of the widespread view in Canada. And then overarching all of this is sort of a lax regulatory environment with regards to these sort of investments. And so while the absolute level of private mortgages in Canada is not enormous, the growth in the last few years and the extent to which that, you know, it's funded the marginal bid is quite remarkable. And it, it really, you know, it, it is one of the more concerning elements of this market because you're talking about one year bullet loans funded by flighty capital from retail investors. I mean, you can see where this can go sideways pretty quickly. I wonder why they call them bullet loans. But uh, before we get into that nomenclature and other such things, I want to say a kind word about uh, one of our sponsors. Uh, well, this episode of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air is brought to you by Purple Mattress. Now, uh, have you ever tossed and turned? <laughs> have you ever not tossed and turned? The listeners to this podcast, I want Purple Mattress to know, buy low and sell high or sell high and buy low for a living. They never get any sleep right? No, no, no. And it's not because of the mattress. I mean, you can't blame the mattress for that. But for those who don't suffer 
eight hours of aggravation owing to the nature of their work, Purple Mattress has, a, has an idea for you. If you're struggling with a good, to get a good night's sleep, well, try a Purple Mattress. So you're wondering, how is Purple Mattress different from other mattresses? I am definitely wondering. All right. Most mattresses use memory foam, which traps body heat and uh, provides inconsistent support. The Purple Mattress uses an entirely new way of, uh, of comfort technology called the uh, Smart Comfort Grid. And the Purple Smart Comfort Grid is scientifically engineered to adapt to any body type or sleeping position. I think that includes the uh, the tormented short-selling position. I think it includes the... Uh, yeah, that's, that's the fetal position, I believe. Yeah, uh, the apprehensive authorial eve of deadline position that's lying on your back staring at the ceiling uh and uh i think that uh, many other positions are covered by this so the purple material feels very unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time so it keeps everything supported while you feel really comfortable plus it's breathable so it sleeps with you so it's like having a partner in bed right yeah i guess so okay cheaper though 100 night risk <laughs> retrial if you're not fully satisfied you can return your mattress for a full refund backed by a 10-year warranty, unlike certain sleeping partners. That's right, bring that's here. right. Yeah. So such uh, another, another point. Another that's big plus. Corner. Yep. Free shipping returns. You're going to love purple. And right now, our listeners will get free a free sheet set and mattress cover with your mattress purchase. Just go to purple.com slash grant. That's purple.com slash grant. Purple.com slash grant. Thank you, Purple Mattress. Gentleman Phil, Phil Grant, whom you both know professionally, and I think uh, perhaps a little bit socially, is is going to uh, take over right. and ask you a little bit about uh, about regulation and uh, fraud. Uh, so let's, uh, let's stay with Ben. Um, so Ben, you've been a, a vocal critic of the uh, regulatory environment in Canada, you including, um, you, I think you mentioned uh, the the sort of widespread level of fraud that goes on. And um, and we know already that a couple smaller lenders like Home Capital and Laurentian Bank have, have disclosed, you know, some significant problems. To to the market, you know, you, you your work has given you a, a view into the kind of the CD underbelly of, of of this market. Can you can you sort of speak to the general regulatory environment, uh, mortgage fraud, and, and bad actors in the industry? Sure, yeah, absolutely. One of the things I try to do um, for my clients is just spend a lot of time out of the office, just speaking to people on the front lines that are originating mortgages. So uh, mortgage brokers, realtors, developers, people who have kind of an insight into how the system actually works in Canada. And one of the things that's quite striking to me is just the disconnect between the perception of underwriting uh, due diligence in Canada versus, in some cases, the reality. And I would perhaps argue that the underwriting standards in Canada are probably better than they were in the U.S. at peak in, in some ways. Um, but there is sort of a perverse incentive structure in Canada whereby we have very sizable mortgage insurance. It's backstopped by the government and it de-risks the lending from the institutions. And so when you layer on top of that a, a sort of a patchwork mortgage regulation structure in Canada where the mortgages are provincially regulated, by and large, the provincial regulators here to be asleep at the wheel with regards to you know, how they police mortgage brokering, how they sort of enforce and some of the, you know, the enforcement actions that they take would seem to be completely out of line with some of the infractions. So you see, you know, people who have committed multiple instances of falsifying loan documents, et cetera, and they end up getting a, you know, three-month ban. And it's just, I mean, really token sort of pun. And so when you, you layer all of this together, you end up with this system where the lenders that are originating the loans, in many cases, the, the risk has been taken off their books. The incentive is not there necessarily for them to uh, scrutinize and underwrite to the sort of extent that one might expect. And then you've got this system where the provincial regulators that are tasked with sort of keeping 
the actors in line uh, really seem to be asleep at the wheel. And then on top of all of this, you have the mortgage insurers themselves that have taken a very lax approach to, to actually making sure that people are, are following the standards that they've set out. And so an extreme example of that is in, in the home capital fraud, you know, we were able to get some freedom of information documents to see just how the provincial, I'm sorry, the, the federal mortgage insurance company, CMHC, uh, responded to the home capital mortgage fiasco. And it's really quite striking. You know, they, they were made aware of this in late 2014, uh, really did nothing, didn't try to quantify the size of the fraud, really nothing until it came out publicly almost nine months later. And then you see some of these kind of frantic emails going back and forth. You know, if you understand that that's the incentive structure in Canada, people are getting paid extremely well to originate these mortgages. The risk has been taken off the bank's balance sheet. Uh, and the the, uh, the regulators seem to be somewhat asleep at the wheel. But I guess the question would be like, well, why wouldn't there be a problem with, with mortgage fraud? And when you then go out and kick some tires with mortgage brokers, you, you know, it, you very quickly start to hear some of these stories. And the anecdotes are very compelling and very uniform to the point where I would argue that there is a structural issue with mortgage fraud here in Canada. So so with that in mind, uh, and I guess we'll, we'll, we'll turn to, to Seth for this next one. So um, with the, you know, with the, with the backdrop of that, that lax regulation and, and sort of misaligned incentives um, and, and what we're seeing at the smaller institutions, Seth, what's going on at the, at the sort of the bigger banks? Like wh- how does the regulatory, you know, light touch jive with the kind of the strong support that the Canadian government has shown those the big six banks in, in prior cycles? And um, what are you seeing in, in terms of, of the of the bigger banks? So let me see if I can un- unpack that. But, you know, I, th- I think everything Ben said applies to the big banks, which is that, you know, essentially the risk on these mortgages has been socialized where for the, the ins- you know, the insured mortgages on their books, they have no risk. The taxpayers bear all the burden on that if things go badly. And they also have no risk weightings that they have to, you know, they don't have to tie up capital on these things. And so, you know, they've obviously expanded their mortgage book a huge amount because it's a sort of risk-free spread for them. They're not really writing mortgages. They're essentially loaning to the government at uh, and pocketing a spread. Um, then, you know, at the same time, as the housing market has slowed and we've begun to see some sort of upticks in stress in the housing market, the accounting in Canada has allowed them to take down their their provisions for for bad debt at a time when arguably they they should be taking them up, and they were already at sort of the lowest levels in the developed world. So, you know, people look at that and, and make it, and they make the judgment that there's no problem because they keep taking the provisions down. But but really, that's, that's acting as a cookie jar, and no one is uh, concerned about that. So as this plays out, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're asking about what the, the government response will be. Yes. Okay. So, you know, I, I think that the, the banks will face stress since the underlying cause of the bubble has been too much lending and, and bad lending. I don't see how a correction won't have repercussions for the lending institutions in, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question becomes what the, what the government response is going to be. And, and my guess is that they're not going to let any of the big six banks fail and there will be either bailouts or stealth bailouts or policy changes. Um, but that, that's my working assumption. Ben and Seth, that is to say Ben Rabideau and Seth Daniels, both authorities on Canadian housing. Gentlemen, the story you tell about uh, Canadian real estate is uh, is very persuasive, certainly to us at Grants, and the facts are chilling. So 
given the compelling nature of the story, one would expect that uh, that some of the plays on this story, that is the investment plays, have already been made and, and that uh, valuations uh, uh, reflect this and that, the, and that the opportunity for an investment on the short side of Canadian real estate is more or less, is not so compelling as it might have been before the story was so well told. Is that true? Or what is your view on the opportunities in Canadian housing to bet against it? So, uh, you know, it's a friend of all of ours likes to say shorting's dangerous, so don't try this at home. But, uh, you know, if anything, I think that there are more opportunities now than before. So the, the market has already cooled and we're seeing a lot of the signposts that I've been looking for for many years play out. Uh, and at the same time, the, the markets in general, not, not just in Canada, but globally are pretty frothy. And so they're ignoring bad news. So, you know, I can't tell you when that's going to change, but fundamentally, uh, the story is, is playing out as you know. I think Ben and I would have expected, and and at some point the the stocks and other assets should reflect that. And this is Ben here. Maybe I just add that look, I, I would say that um, when you think through kind of an order of operations of what this could look like here in Canada, I think some of the more compelling trades in kind of the early stages would be more in the consumer names because um, it looks to me like what we're going to have. And there's you know it takes a bit to unpack this, but when you look at some of the macroprudential regulations and the effect that it's going to have, arguably on consumption, even before you get you know meaningful credit deterioration, assuming that's potentially where we're headed. Um, I think it looks like it's the consumer names that actually could be hit first. And I think the market, you know, even the people that are kind of following housing in Canada, I think that's sort of an underappreciated part of this story is that the consumer names, are just, I mean, household consumption is so heavily levered to housing in Canada that, you know, when you have housing rolling as it is currently, coupled with just meaningful tightening on, on home equity withdrawal and a backup in interest rates, it's actually quite negative for, for some of the kind of consumer uh, sensitive names in Canada. Ben, you just mentioned um, interest rates and uh, most people may or may, or may not know that the, the um, a Canadian regulator just introduced a, um, a new um, a mortgage regulation called B20, which um, which uh, requires all borrowers now to undergo a stress test of, uh, of higher interest rates. And, and while that's happening, um, uh, the Bank of Canada is undergoing its own tightening cycle as we are here. Um, what? Uh, how bad would things have to get before we saw um, that sort of tightening reverse itself? Um, you know, Ben, I know you you mentioned to me in in the past that in the past uh, Canadian uh, housing market, uh, the the Bank of Canada was able to cut interest rates uh, substantially, and, and that provided a, a you know a cushion to the economy. Um, it, it, how do you compare then to now, and um, and what do you think the outlook is for for you know uh, for interest rates? Sure. Well, it's a great question. I think the parallels to previous housing cycles. I mean, it's never perfect, but when you look at the last kind of real housing cycle we had in Canada, it was kind of at the '89 to 1993 period, and it was really a Toronto story first and foremost. You had nominal house prices fall about 25% peak trough in Canada. Uh, I'm sorry, in Toronto during that time. But what's interesting, as you alluded to, is you had the Bank of Canada uh, in those four years cut the overnight rate a 1,000 basis points then to put a floor under housing. And what it did at the time was, as you can imagine, decimated the currency. You had a powerhouse manufacturing sector that kind of roared back to life. And it provided for this relatively seamless transition from the excess labor in the construction and, and real estate sectors back into manufacturing 
mean, the problem this time around is obviously there's, you know, we don't have a thousand basis points to gut, nowhere near that. And we've decimated the, the manufacturing sector and we've tilted so much of the economy towards these housing derivative industries. I mean, it's really quite striking in Canada. If you look at just transaction fees associated with real estate, so these are primarily realtor commission. Um, right now in Canada, those amount, when you add all that up, it's about three times what all of the companies in Canada are spending on research and development annually. So you've got this tremendous skew in the Canadian economy away from productive industries and in, in, in towards housing. And, and it makes the, you know, the recovery phase and much more, much more challenging. And then on top of that, you've got this tremendous leverage on the household balance sheets that really was not there during the last cycle. So, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how bad it could get in Canada. It certainly argues that if we end up in another cycle, similar to what we've seen in the 70s and 80s, and I, I think we'd probably all agree we're overdue for that sort of an outcome, then it just makes the job of the policymakers that much more challenging. So yeah. I don't know at what point the Bank of Canada gets dovish on this, but it, you know, they would certainly halt their tightening bias pretty quickly. And we may even see that kind of first half of next year. You know what's going to be worse, gentlemen? What's going to be worse What's going to be very much worse are the schadenfreude tweets that have come from Donald Trump when Canada really gets into trouble. You are going to... The War of 1812 was going to resume just because Canadians are going to have had it. Yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's just a prediction. It's not a fact. But anyway, um, so what else do we have to talk about? We have talked about uh, prices. We have talked about fraud. We have talked about uh, everything except Purple Mattress, which I think I'll do in a moment. So. Uh, Ben and Seth, thank you uh, so much for being with us. And uh, Evan Lorenz, are you pointing to something? Yes, there? Evan, uh, who doesn't have a mic, just suggested that uh, perhaps a, a pair trade long idea would be a, a fire insurance on the White House in case uh, yeah, you know, excellent. 1812 excellent. Uh, tensions yeah. flare up again. Yeah, yeah, that was a little historical confusion on the part of the president, but uh, what's a little confusion can't, can't among blame. friends? Yeah. No, yeah. So Seth and Ben, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I count this episode of Grant's podcast as a constructive step towards Canadian-American friendship myself. So ladies and gentlemen, until next time, uh, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.